Let's invite the Lord into our presence together. <clears throat> Almighty God, we come into your presence with fear and trembling. Lord, this is the, the very same presence that Isaiah came into and felt undone in the presence of your thrice holy name, the glory. And yet we have access through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what a tremendous privilege we have. Father, we ask that your presence would be here with us, that the word of God that would go forth would be sharp and would cut through our, our dullness of hearing, our distractedness, our tiredness. And Father, that we would be changed. Lord, that this would not be a matter of routine and ritual, but a matter of relationship. And that we would indeed open our hearts and allow you to change us from the inside out. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The past uh, a few weeks, I've been going through the, the Bible from the beginning and uh, recently went uh, through the book of Numbers. And there's uh, some chapters in there that just feel so contemporary. They feel like as if these words are what's popularly being said even today. And so I felt inspired to, uh, to read them together with you this morning. Uh, Numbers chapter 16. Let's read together from that, that chapter. <clears throat> the, the context, while you're, you're finding it, um, as we know, the Israelites have, have been slaves for 400 years. And God has delivered them miraculously, brought them through the Red Sea, a you know, type of baptism. And uh, just even though they were uh, freed physically, they've yet to really grow and mature spiritually. And um, just two chapters ago, they were on the border of the promised land. They were about to enter in. They had the, the 12 spies that went in to, to see what kind of a land it was. And two had faith and said, we can do it. The other 10 focused on the fact that they were giants, though that they were, had walled cities, that they were intimidated. They focused on their fears, discouraged the people. And uh, they wanted to appoint a captain to go back to Egypt, to slavery. And they really offended God at their uh, wanting to turn their back on every blessing, wanting to go back and undo all the good that he has done. And God said that, okay, you're, you're worried that your young children won't be protected and, you know, you're going to have to now wander till every one of you has died in the wilderness. And those young ones that you thought were going to die, they're the ones that are going to actually enter in. So that's what has just happened uh, two chapters ago, they, uh, of course, they were presumptuous. They said, okay, okay, we'll change their mind. We're going to go in. And they charged up and go, Moses warned them, God's not with you. You can't do this on your own. And they indeed uh, 
suffered a major defeat. And now they're wandering the wilderness. And they're, they're in this state where they, they, they've escaped the power of the enemy. God has provided for them for food and drink. But there's this issue of who's in charge. There's this human nature that's coming out about who gets to call the shots. And that's what's being addressed in this chapter. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. They were, had uh, well-known, very popular. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. If I were to say this in contemporary English, who do you think you are? That you are the ones who are telling us what to do. Every one of us are holy, right? Every one of us. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. And he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him, even him whom he hath chosen, will he cause to come near unto him. This do take you censers, Korah and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Ye take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi." And Moses said unto Korah, Here, I pray you, you, ye sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you, that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them? And he hath brought thee near to him, and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, and seek ye the priesthood also? So in context, God had separated the tribe of Levi. They weren't going to get land, but they had this special uh, privilege that they were to minister in the very tabernacle of God, places where the average Israelite couldn't go, but apparently that wasn't enough. They wanted the position that Aaron had. For which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord, and what is Aaron that ye murmur against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us? Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey, or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards, Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. It's the, they're 
calling the land of slavery where they were beaten and whipped and having to make bricks and were slaves, the land of milk and honey. They're saying they're not taking responsibility for their own choice not to go into the land, promised land. They are blaming it on Moses, even though it was their own choice. And they're blaming him as if he was trying to be a, a lord over them, a prince over them. That was all kind of, you kind of see it's really about who's in charge. And Moses was very wroth and said unto them, Respect not their offering. I have not taken one donkey or ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow, and take every man his censer and put incense in them, and bring ye therefore the Lord every man before the Lord, every man his censer, two hundred and fifty censers, thou also and Aaron, each of you his censer. And they put every man his censer and put fire in them and laid incense thereon and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, get you up from about the tabernacle or the tents, of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him, and he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, on every side. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents, and their wives, and their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain or belongs unto them, and they go down quick or alive into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking, all these words that the ground clave or split apart, asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses and all the men that appertained or belonged unto Korah and all their goods." They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, speak unto Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest that he take up the censers out of the burning and scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hallowed. 
The censers of these sinners against their own souls, let them make broad plates for a covering of the altar, for they offer them before the Lord, therefore they are hallowed, and they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. And Eliezer the priest took the brazen censers wherewith they that were burnt had offered, and they were made broad plates for covering of the altar to be a memorial unto the children of Israel that no stranger which is not of the seed of Aaron come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he be not as Korah and as his company, as the Lord said to him by the hand of Moses. Now you think that would be bad enough. You think that people would learn. I mean, the ground opened up and swallowed them. Fire came out and burned the very people that were murmuring. But it seems that sometimes we're very slow to learn lessons. It's like rebellion is infectious. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed, ye have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation. Behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer, put fire thereon from off the altar, and put it on incense, and go quickly into the onto the congregation and make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed or stopped. I've read the entire chapter. You may have wondered why I felt this was a contemporary story when it speaks of Old Testament um, tabernacles and priesthood and, and incense and fire from heaven. But I think the attitude, the attitude of Korah and Dathan and Abiram and the congregation and the revisionist history and the manipulation and power mongering based on popularity versus you know, perceived oppression by those who in, are currently in a position of power. I think it speaks very much to the spirit of our times. Very much. We uh, have been studying the... Um, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 for some time. And, and it was, um, I never really put together the why the first 11 or 9 verses are there in that chapter. 
It doesn't start off with the armor of God. It starts off with children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And goes on to address how you should treat your master, not with eye service, not just like doing the right thing when he's looking, but as if you're serving God. And same for those who are in positions of authority that they need to realize that they're also answerable to a higher authority for how they treat their children or their employees or slaves. So the principle of authority was like the first thing that's being addressed in that chapter. And if we continue on going back, it, it goes to the husband and wife relationship. And this principle of authority is relevant to the battle that is being waged. After all, who are we fighting? It clearly says it's not about the people that are on the chessboard, if you will. It's not about flesh and blood. This is really a cosmic battle between God and the forces opposed to God, led by a certain angel that was very powerful, one that was the highest of all angels, the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most musical from what we can see in Isaiah and other depictions of him. Very intelligent, very powerful. And, and we know the power of, of these angels. One night, one angel went into um, the opposing Assyrian army, I believe it was, and, and 185,000 were dead by morning. One angel. And, and, and yet, he's no match for, for Lucifer, the highest of all angels. So we're, we're talking about a very powerful force that is smarter than I am, more powerful than I am, that I'm not going to be able to outplay in chess or arm wrestle or any other contest. But the attitude, the attitude of that true enemy is that right there in the beginning he says, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. I don't want to answer to anybody. And that's where the spirit of rebellion began before, before the Garden of Eden even happened. And that's what we see coming up here. We see, we see Dathan and Abiram and Korah. We see this congregation. But behind there, there is a spiritual instigator. There is someone who's agitating, who is the same, very same spiritual force that is agitating today in, in the demonstrations we see in this very city, where people are angry against those that would have God-given distinctions between male and female, between, you know, you know, marriage and, and non-marriage between uh, the most basic of categories that are all being blurred and definitely against anyone who would put themselves into a position of authority. And we see the same tools. I mean, look at how these people speak. It's the same thing. Like, who do you think you are to make yourself a prince among us? 
who made you? I mean, okay, it's actually God. And he kind of made it pretty clear when he called Moses from the burning bush. And he kind of made it pretty clear when he did like 10 huge plagues and toppled a superpower. I mean, and opened the Red Sea and brought manna from the sky and water from a rock. And it was pretty clear that God was the one who spoke to him and his face was shining. And he came down from the mountain with with tablets written by God's finger. I mean, yeah, yeah, God made them. But somehow we're kind of have this very selective memory and this revisionist of his. We, a, a rebellious person, a postmodern person, doesn't believe that there is, you know, one real history or anything called truth. All that past is just sort of ammunition or, 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 you know, Lego blocks that we can rearrange to tell the story we want to tell. And so, you know, we say, Moses, you know, you took us from a land of milk and honey. Right. A land of milk and honey. Right? You, you were slaves and you were whipped every day and you barely had food and you were crying out to God for hundreds of years to deliver you from this bitter oppression and now it's a land of milk and honey. Okay? And nowadays, do we not see the same revisionist history? You know, where, you know, it's, oh, uh, you know, the past 50 years of scientific research show that there's actually no biological difference between men and women. Right. You know, we're, we're, we're going to ignore very obvious facts because we want to tell our story that makes it look like we're the oppressed ones and woe is us and we have this grudge and this right to overthrow the corrupt, oppressive, patriarchal, uh, you know, forces that are keeping us in the dark ages. You know, especially if they happen to believe in God. And they happen to believe in right and wrong because that's the oppression that really rankles and really disturbs people because it kind of gets in the way of and, 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 and makes them feel bad about the choices that they're making. You know, it makes killing unborn babies seem like a wrong thing. But this isn't about culture. We need to apply these things to ourselves because we have to recognize that this spiritual enemy is alive and well and trying to infiltrate our own hearts. And when we see this attitude of saying, who made you the boss? We are all equals. Well, Yes, the scripture does say that, you know, there, we are all one in Christ. There's no ethnical dis, ethnic dis, difference, no gender difference, no, um, you know, economic difference, that, that we are all in, one in Christ. That's very true, that we are all kings and priests, and, and we don't have 
what we see here, there God made a distinction between the high priest who was allowed into the Holy of Holies and the Levites who were allowed into the tabernacle and then the Israelite men that were allowed in the court and then Israelite women and then the stranger. He made all these distinctions and, and Jesus came and he ripped down that, that veil, that separation between the presence of God and everyone so that every one of us, even though we aren't the high priest and haven't had you know, a sacrifice made for us, and it isn't the one time of year that we're allowed. Every one of us, every day, at every moment, can enter into that very presence of God. That is incredible. And there's a huge difference between the access that we have and the access that these people had to God. But still, we are coming into the presence of a holy God and a holy God that does believe in authority. And a God who says in Romans 12 that even the authorities in this world that, you know, I might be, you know, here sort of uh, complaining about, that God has placed them there. And that it's my responsibility to pray for them. And it's my responsibility to honor them and try to pray that they do make right decisions rather than to agitate and foment, you know, some sort of uh, rebellion against. In that, you know, he has placed authorities such as parents, for example, that it is right to obey them because it's reflecting our submission to God. And that it's right to obey our employers and to act with integrity with respect to our time and energy with respect to our employers because we are honoring our God and we're serving our God ultimately by doing that. And that God is, God did not flip things into a state of anarchy when he ripped down that veil. He came and near and is enabling us to live in a right relationship with him, the ultimate authority. And if we're going to throw off our human authorities we are, in effect, throwing off the ultimate authority in doing that. And this attitude is insidious. This, this sense of grievance, sense that uh, I have been unjustly treated, it's unfair in that, you know, the, the authorities over me, I have a right to um, disregard them because, look, they're making mistakes. Look, things are not as promised. You know, hey, we're supposed to be living in a land of milk and honey, and here we are in the middle of the desert, you know, and it's all your fault. That wasn't a valid criticism, but, you know, Moses wasn't perfect. He did make mistakes, and certainly the authorities in our lives make mistakes. In the temptation and what Satan, and we have, to, we have to ultimately see that this is really about Satan stirring up this sentiment in us and using it to try to bring chaos to ever... It, I, I remember... Um, I, I, one of the things I 
I love history. History helps me understand like why things are the way they are. You know, I, I say, oh, okay, you know, that makes sense. <clears throat> and uh, we, we got this, this CD set, um, went through history uh, from, I think, the time of Romans to maybe 1980s or so. My kids hated it. They couldn't stand the narrator's voice, and they missed out because I learned so much when I listened to that. I, I got this perspective um, that, uh, and you get through to the 19th century, and all of a sudden, you know, we go from kind of these orderly, well, you know, there were wars and there was conflict, but in, in, the, in the 20th century, you just see that it's just accelerating, and all of a sudden, like, you just, you know, get, you overthrow the kingdom and the, you know, the, the hero uh, terrorist gets relabeled you know, freedom fighter, and yet they get just as corrupt, and you know, you've got to repeat the process, and you see all over the world this, this increasing sense of let's get rid of authority, but the people who get put into authority happen to be human and have the same corrupt nature, and now that they feel they're not accountable, and what really happened is before people felt they were, you know, there was a God they ultimately had to answer to, now they think as long as I'm on top, I get to call the shots. And you see this, you know, corruption that's going on in you know, human government. But you see the people no longer respecting that. And Satan loves it. It really plays into his hands. This whole, there is no authority. We have the right to overthrow it because we're rejecting when we reject authority. The ultimate authority. And so it's easy to pick that up, that infectious, insidious belief that I don't have to listen because my authority has been disqualified. And then I can kind of share that with other people. As you kind of see, Korah himself is bringing the congregation to the door of the tabernacle. He says, come watch this. We are going to show that we're just as good and God's going to accept us. And they get to watch him get fried to cinder. But he's stirring them up. And, and they, they watch God do this. They watch God bring fire down from heaven and split the earth. And, and they don't lose the sense of grievance. It's just like so deep inside of them that I have a right to be upset. I have a right to reject Moses and Aaron as my leaders, the next day, it's like, you have killed the people of God. Uh, did Moses kill Korah or Dathan or Abiram? Like, did Moses bring fire down from heaven? I mean, it was Moses who's falling on his face saying, God, save these people, because God was saying, I want to wipe them all out. And Moses is there flat on his face saying, no, just because just one man has sinned, don't wipe everybody out. And, and that's what it's like being a leader. When you're a leader, you get it from both sides, right? You have to deal, the very people that you're in charge of protecting are the ones who are attacking you. That's, you know, welcome to parenthood and to leadership. Um, you see David, you know, he's, 
He's there facing the smoking ruins of, you know, everything he owned and, and his 600 men are ready to stone him, right? And he's got to encourage himself in the Lord in order to recover things. And, and you see, you know, here's Moses, right? The very people that, you know, God wanted to wipe them out of Mount Sinai already when they were out doing the golden calf thing. And, and he pleaded and says, write my name, take my name, blot it out of the book of life, and save them. He put his eternity at stake to save these people, and, and this is how he's being repaid. But, you know, that's what Jesus did, right? That's what Jesus did. Jesus is there on the cross, and we're spitting on him. We're, we're mocking him. We're rejecting the one who come down to, to atone for us, to, who's, who's got that burning censer of making atonement is standing between the dead and the living, between those who are going to, to die by the plague of sin and those who are going to live. And it wasn't because they didn't sin. It was because of the atonement that was being offered in between. Jesus is there taking that abuse from the very people he not only created, who, who wouldn't like exist, who wouldn't have the breath to spit on him, for whom he's actually suffering in agony for, for whom he's bearing their sin. I mean, if there was an injustice to get upset about, that would be it. And he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And so when you're in a position where you've got people that God's entrusted you with to take care of and they're spitting in your face and they are, 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 are just abusing you, they're, they're writing all this revisionist history how it's because of you that their life stinks. And it's everything wrong in the life is your fault, right? And, and if you were just out of the way, their life would be better. And you know, you know the sacrifices you made. And you know what you've done for them. Well, remember Jesus. Because you have not suffered as much as he has yet. You have not. And remember, you were the one who was rejecting the love of the one who died for you. We need to, even as a body, beware of the insidious, infectious nature of rebellion. Because it's not the people. There is a dark force behind it. It's why the belt of truth is important, because you see, all this revisionist history and these lies and these, these, these fact manipulation, these these false facts or whatever, you know, the, the name du jour for lying and trying to build up your case even though you don't have one, uh, the, that gets exposed through truth. That's why the belt of truth is important. That's why we need to be committed. And it's humbling because we have to admit when we're wrong. Admit where we have done wrong. Admit and be honest with each other and even ask forgiveness. 
from God and each other and not allow lies to fester even when they get spread from person to person. When the sentiment, because sometimes it's not even about facts. I mean, we see this revisionist story how Moses, you took us from this land of milk and honey and now you're putting us in the desert and it's all your fault when it's the other way around. We need to also fight against that insidious power and recognize where it's coming from. The, this, the one that says that, you know, if I was in charge, things would be so much better. If only they put me in charge. And in fact, since I'm not in charge, I'm just going to step back and watch it fall apart. You know, because that's what they deserve. They think they're somebody. You know, I'm just going to I'm going to pull back a little bit and we're going to just see what happens. Who do you think's behind that type of thinking? Behind the thinking that totally breaks Ephesians 4? That, that, that totally breaks the fact that God has placed every single one of us in the body? And yeah, if you pull back, this thing's going to fall apart because God said he, you are an essential part of it. And it won't be the, just the leader's fault who's probably making lots of mistakes of their own. It will be yours. But it's not like, okay, I won and I just showed that the leader was incompetent and I would be so much better. No, no, no. Satan won. Satan wins. When we pull back and don't put our shoulder in and don't lean in and try to make God's kingdom grow because we're not the ones who... Maybe the Moses. And don't we see who really wins when we have that attitude and when we don't really work together? Bob Freund often said that a lot more would get done in the kingdom if people didn't worry so much about who got the credit. And, and being in leadership is not is not always a path of roses. The Bible says, beware. If you're going to be a teacher, you're going to receive more condemnation. You're going to be accountable. Right? It's a, it's a price to be paid. And, and those people who God has, has asked to be in that position, we need to support them. We need to be the Aaron and hers that lift up the arms because they're weak and tired and frail and sure they make mistakes. We need to be the ones to make it work rather than to stand back and watch it fail. We need to discern the spirit and make sure that Satan doesn't use us or infect us, or infect others through us, even worse. That we don't pick up this sense of grievance, the sense of, I've been wronged, and therefore I have the right to, you know, express this acid contagion of my disgruntledness to other people, right? That, that doesn't 
pass through the filter of Philippians 4.8 where he says, you know, whatsoever is true and lovely and of good report. It doesn't pass through the filter of be anxious for nothing but with prayer, with thanksgiving, where we love and pray and encourage those, even those who have hurt us, like Jesus did from the cross, where we pull together and every, every joint supplies the need for each other. In some ways, this was immature. We see here were slaves that no longer had the whip on their back. And now they got to figure out who's in charge without being forced to. And yeah, Moses was not there with a whip. So does that mean they get to do whatever they feel like? Now, God doesn't want to bring fire down from heaven. And he doesn't do that because he would rather we choose to follow the example of Jesus, where we would rather choose to identify with the, the spirit of one who submitted willingly and trusted God and was willing to even suffer in order to get God's will accomplished and that we would be inspired to, to choose him and choose to submit to him rather than being scared into submitting to him. He, he, that's going to happen. When, when he splits the skies at the very end, every knee's going to bow. They're going to have no choice. But right now he's withholding the full glory and majesty and power of his might, and he's not burning everybody who's, who's rebelling against him because he wants to give you the chance, because he loves you. He wants to give you the chance on your own to turn your back on the lies and the manipulation of those dark forces and to come underneath the covering of that, that breastplate of righteousness that he provides and the, the shield of faith that's going to block more of those, those dangerous, destructive, contagious, because fire is contagious. And that you can have that helmet of salvation that can, can, can prevent, prevent your mind from being attacked because you have this new identity in Christ. And you can prevent, have your feet in the peace of God. That you can't be, can't be destabilized by his attacks. So that you can be dependent on him through prayer. And, and find yourself energized and able to stand. That you no longer allow yourself to be manipulated but rather you can be a force. It's interesting, and you study these words, God's end goal isn't just that you are preserved and you're able to stand and not get taken in. His end goal, he wants you to have vengeance. Now, that's kind of a weird thing because we see vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We shouldn't be into, you know, vengeance. I mean, Edmund, your whole sermon, you're talk, talking about not holding on to grievances and getting even with people, that that's how Satan loves to work. And you're right. God doesn't want us to get even with people because those people were pawns to begin with. He wants us to look beyond the people who've hurt us to the actual 
lies and force behind it. And when he says the ultimate goal, end of repentance, is revenge, which is a little hard to understand, when he says the ultimate goal of us being able to be in the right standing and fully armored is so that we can take vengeance on the evil one, it's because we actually get to expose the lies. Well, we need to actually be lights here. We can huddle behind these four walls and talk about it here, but am I willing to stand and expose the lies at my workplace, at my school, where, where poor people are being hoodwinked? Poor people are being lied to and led to their own destruction. Am I able to to take that armor not as a merely defensive thing so that I can stay safe, me and mine, but actually save the people around me that are also being attacked and infected and being swept by this tide, by this plague. So now we can see that this old story is actually pretty relevant because we're still the same people. We still have the same levers and buttons that's the same Satan, the opposer of God's authority, wants to oppose through us his order and authority. And let's not allow ourselves to have, be, have any part of his schemes but rather to expose him, rather to use the weapons God's given to, to, to have vengeance on the one who caused so much torment in our own lives. Because he's given us the victory. He's given us the access. And it's really through that relationship with him. Satan can tell the difference. Sorry, I'm over time. Sometimes people think they can go up against Satan and maybe you've heard or seen, you know, they, 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 they kind of, through the authority of Jesus, because that's where the authority makes a difference. Because now when I'm under God's authority, I'm under his protection, and I can even resist the devil and he is forced to flee from me. Some people try to use that as a gimmick. They use the words without the power. And you read in Acts 19 where seven sons of Siva did that same thing. They stood up against Satan and they had the right words. We adjure you by the name of Jesus and whom Paul preaches. It was the right words. They worked for those who had a relationship with Jesus. But those who didn't, they didn't. And that one man was able to defeat these seven sons and they ran naked and bruised from the house and totally ashamed. It's so it's that relationship with Jesus. Is that name one that the, the devil's recognized, but is it one that we are really under that authority and we're submitted to it and therefore protected by it and therefore have the power to even evict the evil forces that are operating around us? It's that relationship that is the key. Brother Edmund had alluded to um, 
prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Satan. We know the very famous or very well-known passage in Isaiah 14 where it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, the son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Because he said about five times, I will ascend to the heavens. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights. I will be like the most high. And I will, I will, I will, I will. And God says, you won't. Do we find ourselves in our lives saying, I will, and not God's will, if God will? Do we find ourselves lifting ourselves above the word of God? That's where we've come in this world. Mankind has lifted himself above the word of God, and that's why we're in such a predicament we are today. My dear friend outside of Jesus Christ, will you continue to say, I will? Or will you say, my Jesus, as thou wilt? And see how your life will change. To God be the glory forevermore. This concludes our service.